0: Hey, everyone, it's Hal from None But The Brave. Before we begin tonight's show, we just wanted to take a second and really let everyone know how much we appreciate that you've been listening these past few years. We also want to tell you about something new that we're doing. We now have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash MBTV podcast. And if you check it out, you'll find we're doing what we think is a lot of fun content that complements the main podcast. There's a monthly live stream where we take calls from subscribers, and we're also doing bonus episodes with a lot of additional tour coverage. And soon we will unveil our subscriber only message board. So, again, if you're interested, go to patreon.com forward slash MBTV podcast. And now on to the show. Yes. Hello out there, everyone. and Welcome back to None But The Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz. And as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And Flynn, we've got another big time guest coming up tonight, Stephen Hyden, which I'm very excited about. But before we get to that, a little reaction from our last episode where we had Charles Cross on. And we heard from across the spectrum, there were a lot of people saying it was one of our best episodes. And there were certainly some people where he touched a nerve with his criticism of Bruce's current show I just think it's great we got people
1: talking Oh absolutely it was uh, as, as we said it was an honor to talk to him he is the he is the grandfather of of Bruce fandom in, in, in some ways in terms of spreading the the gospel of Bruce and yeah he had some criticism of the show and that's his right to have. And, but we enjoyed having him on and we love getting people talking.
0: Yeah. It's an amazing thing just to think that our show is causing that level of reaction. and, And we want to hear it all. We were happy to engage with the people, who had some criticisms of the episode. Obviously, we love hearing people who think it was our best episode ever. No surprise there. But it's just what we want to do with this show is, is really get people talking about these issues. And we feel like there was a void in the community. And I, I just really, really gratifying to see the response, both pro and
1: con. As you said, we like hearing from people and uh... Let's hope tonight's episode also gets people talking.
0: I think it will. We've got Stephen, as I said, coming up. He's got a much different take on the tour than Charlie, but we'll let the interview speak for itself. In the meantime, we have a couple of new shows announced. San Diego, for the first time since 1981, there have been so many questions from people why doesn't he ever play san diego i think it's like the seventh largest city by population in the country and it is weird that he hasn't been there in over 40 years but on december 2nd that wait will end and also we got the second foxborough show which we had mentioned uh, a few weeks back a little delay there i guess they were debating whether to actually go ahead with it but
1: now it's officially announced but there was there's a wrinkle to the san diego uh, ticket sale isn't uh, you were telling me about that earlier
0: Yeah, and this is a weird one, considering they sold the entire year of shows (laughs) in one way, and now San Diego, which is being sold by Axis, so thankfully there's no verified fad, but there was a restriction on the pit tickets, two per person, which has been the case all year, but non-transferable and non-resellable. Now, again, this is just weird. If that was a policy they were going to do, one wonders why they didn't do it for the other. How many shows are they playing in the states in the arenas? (laughs) 50 or so? Uh, to just have it pop up here for one show, the last show they're going to announce, I think, in the States for 2023. It's a, it's a bit odd, but I, I guess they want to test and see if those tickets are treated differently now that they won't be able to be resold.
1: This may actually be the only way they can actually beat uh, beat brokers but or scalpers, but they always seem to find a way around, and I don't think this time will be any different. But And it will be a pain for fans who maybe – will tr- be traveling and somehow for some reason co- can't make it to the show or something comes up. And so I think it will be a huge inconvenience for 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 some, for some people.
0: Well, that's the thing. They didn't announce anything like Pearl Jam has the face value exchange which we've talked about before. So, if you can't go, you post your tickets on the face value exchange and you can sell them for another to another fan. Here, if they're not going to set something like that up, yeah, if someone gets sick at the wrong time, obviously we're in the age of COVID. Now, there are ways around that. If you and I were going to a show and I got sick, you would just log into to the app as me. And there are other ways, of course. But it is a restriction that I don't particularly love, but we'll see how it goes in terms of the sale and whether it helps the pit tickets last longer.
1: That's a good question. And whether the prices are going to be uh, as high as as they are for San Francisco and L.A.?
0: Well, San Francisco, as I think we discussed before, is off the charts, especially for the pit tickets. L.A. is certainly high, but nowhere near what San Francisco is. And I expect that San Diego, it's a Saturday night. It'll be a tough ticket. I don't know if it'll be out of control because they haven't been there in 42 years. It's going to be very interesting to
1: see the response. Well, just interesting that people can't resell them, and so we w- really won't know what what the market's going to be for that, except directly from uh, access a ticket sale- seller. Well,
0: they are doing; they do have their own version of platinum tickets, and I suspect there will be platinum pit tickets. But <laughs> I believe they call them premium, so we may still see some elevated pricing.
1: Right, but that's going to be the only way to monitor the market.
0: Keep in mind, all the other tickets are not restricted. So you will know what the prime sides are going for. And it, that's another thing, just to restrict the 400 tickets in the pit. I, I guess, it's a, as I say, it's a strategy they're experimenting with. I do find it a bit weird.
1: Anyway, um, I'm getting kind of tired of ticket talk as, as it is. So let's bring in our guest for tonight.
0: And our guest tonight is Stephen Haydn, who has been Uproxx's cultural critic since 2016. He's also the co-host of Uproxx's weekly indie rock podcast, IndieCast, as well as the new Dylan podcast, never Ending Stories, which follows his never-ending tour. He's also the author of several books about music, including Long Road, Pearl Jam, The tra- Soundtrack of a Generation, This Isn't Happening, Hard to Handle, Twilight of the Gods, and Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, Stephen Hyden. We are thrilled to have you here. Welcome to the show.
2: I'm thrilled uh, to be here. When I was saying before uh, we pressed record that it's great to see your faces because you've been in my head for a few years here now, so it, it, it's good to put faces to uh, voices. Thank you.
1: Now, Stephen, you, you recently wrote wrote a review of Bruce's show in in Saint Paul, and you really you really captured like so much of the essence of this tour. You talk about the thrill of being there. And then the tickets, and then just the fact that this train's coming to an end, and it's it came out so good. You want to talk a little bit about it?
2: Yeah. Uh, so I saw Bruce uh, in the band in uh, it was in St. Paul. I live in the Twin Cities here in Minnesota, and it was right before the little break here due to illness. I, I, I think I haven't heard lately. If that's all okay, if I, if, uh, cause there were three shows postponed, but I think they're back on track now tonight. Yes. And okay. Okay. Uh, so this was like right before that. And of course I've been listening to the recording to see if there were any signs of maybe Bruce was ill or, or what was going on. I I mean, I had no, when I was there, I, I, nothing seemed to miss. Uh, but yeah, like when, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to write something big about this tour, uh, because of uh, it's just been a long time, you know, since the he's been on tour with the East Street Band. I I was lucky enough to see Springsteen on Broadway, so I saw him uh, at that time. But uh, you know, not since the River Tour in, in 2016 has uh, he been doing like the big time arena show. And uh, you know, I had two thoughts going on in my head uh, simultaneously throughout the concert. One was Bruce looks great. The band sounds great. I can almost trick myself into thinking that they're going to just be able to do this forever. And then the other thought was what was really implanted by Bruce himself, because I think the theme of this tour is a continuation of what letter to you uh, talks about, which is really a reflective type uh, vibe and, and and looking back on a life and, and really ruminating on, mortality and that's bigger than just that album of course i mean that was a big theme of his memoir uh born to run he talks about that in uh, springsteen on broadway uh i don't know it was just a very sort of uh it was a powerful experience because the because the band was great but i think the themes of the show which to me seem very deliberate yes to me there's like a definite narrative because you know the people are complaining about the set list being more or less the same I mean there's minor variations every night but it's more or less the same and that seems like that's because Bruce is trying to tell a story with this tour and, and, and you don't want to speculate I, you know, I have no idea like what the future holds uh, for this band but th- to me they were playing as if they know that they're closer to the end than the beginning you know that was the vibe I get watching the show so it, it was a very powerful experience I think for that reason
0: We felt the same way. And if anyone has yet to read this article, it's called On His Latest Tour, Bruce Springsteen Contemplates His Own Ending in Uproxx. I want to highlight some of your language because you really depict the scene so cinematically. You talk about that during 10th Avenue, Bruce is walking towards you and you write, as he gets closer, I fixate on the beads of sweat pouring down from his deeply tanned and chiseled forehead. He's putting out a level of moisture not seen since Patrick Ewing in the 1994 (laughs) NBA Finals. Here is a 73-year-old man who has been performing on stage for two and a half hours, and I imagine he must be exhausted. But as Bruce finally looms over me like I'm a tourist surveying the iconic mugs etched into Mount Rushmore, he betrays no signs of tiredness. This time, Hakeem Olajuwon doesn't stand the chance. (laughs) first of all, uh, phenomenal. But also what you're writing about there is is so true. And there's, we've talked about it. The man is a freak of nature. It's just really remarkable to think not only him, but the entire band, of course, he's up there every minute, is putting out that level of energy at their ages. And sometimes we feel a little... Like, we shouldn't be talking about his age so much, but it is part of the story. And that's really the point of your article.
2: Yeah. Um, and this is the paradox of Bruce Springsteen, I think, because the only other person I could compare him to is a Mick Jagger, you know, where Mick Jagger's in his 80s. And you can tell that there's almost this like maniacal commitment to physical fitness, you know, where he could be this older guy and be so energetic on stage, uh, you know, in a way that someone half his age would find difficulty maintaining. But the difference with Bruce is that in terms of his songs and what he talks about on stage, you know, he's constantly recognizing the passage of time and he's making it uh, really like the backbone, I think of this tour. So you have this kind of interesting juxtaposition between like how good bruce looks and also this constant reminder of you know what's been lost over time and and, and what lies ahead and you know and with bruce it, it, you just wonder okay there's going to be a point hopefully because you know hopefully bruce is just going to keep performing and making music here for the next few decades you think uh, is he going to pivot into being a guy who sits on a stool with an acoustic guitar. And that's going to be the way he expresses himself. And he's even hinted at this a little bit, like in the Howard Stern interview, he was talking about how, I don't know if I'm always going to be doing three hour shows. You know, maybe I'm going to be more like a Johnny Cash type person, or he was talking about Pete Seeger, you know, performing into his nineties, another folk musician. And that seems like, of course that's going to happen. But then you see him on stage and you can trick yourself into thinking, this is going to last forever. You know, I'm going to always be able to see this band. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's like there's two kind of competing thoughts in your mind, or at least for me, like when I was watching this show.
1: Well, going back to Mick Jagger, I really, really liked how you described him. The spry <laughs> exoskeleton known as Mick Jagger. I thought that was a, an incredible, incredible imagery right there. But... <laughs> You do also mention in the article about that you will, you won't always. You know that Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band will not always be performing, and that's w- really where that the oncoming light from the from the train really kind of kind of kicks in when, when you talk about that, especially when you say that after the show and you start to come down from your high, it kind of hits you like a ton of bricks.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, going into this show, I uh, I really tried to avoid. Any commentary about the tour, you know, and I wasn't listening to the recordings uh, on Nugs.net. I really wanted to go in as fresh as I could. I did end up seeing some set lists, and so I was aware that uh, it was basically a static set list. But I, you know, I wanted it, I wanted it to be fresh going into it. But one thing I did do is I listened to Letter to You a lot, like in the week before the show. And I remember, like, when that album came out. I I liked the record quite a bit. I kind of had like a weird hang up about the old songs on that record. Him taking those songs and updating them. And I think in my mind, I was feeling like this feels like a cheat, you know, like why is he taking these old songs and, and passing them off as new? And I think for some reason that made me think of the record less than it was like when it came out and revisiting it before this show, I mean, my mind was completely changed. I mean, I just, I, I just think that's a, such a dumb way to think of it, you know, the way I was thinking about it before. And I don't know how you guys feel about that record. It really hit home for me as like, I think that's like one of his best records of the 21st century. Oh, and we definitely agree. Yeah. Definitely. And, and I think it is because, On one hand, you know, I love that it's recorded live. It sounds like the band on stage in a way that like a lot of his other recent records don't sound like. So you have that. But I think it also does have that narrative thread that all the great Springsteen records have. That you feel like the songs fit together in not like a concept album kind of way. But, you know, that there's a thread to it and that... Almost like a movie, a beginning, middle, and an end. And you get a real kind of sense of where he's at when he made the record. And I was like, it was actually genius for him to, you know, get if I was the priest and Janie needs a shooter and song for orphans. Cause it plays into this idea that he's, you know, looking at his own past and like these old songs have resonance now. And then, and how that just kind of carries over the tour. Cause I thought there were so many instances in this show of him pairing songs together. And how you have ghosts and prove it all night together, for instance, right. and how they're both about performing and the joy of performing, but it's from two different parts of his life. So ghost changes what prove it all night means and prove it all night changes what ghosts means. Or like in the center of the show uh, where he sings um, last man standing and then goes into back streets, which for me was like the heart of the show. I mean, it's the heart of the show because it's like, it's like in the middle of the show. But this idea of both of those songs being about meeting a friend and you're going to take over the world together and then it comes apart for whatever reason. But like Backstreet's is written by a guy in his 20s. Last Man Standing" is written by a guy in his 70s. That's such a powerful conversation going on between those songs. I just feel like he does that repeatedly throughout the set list. And for me, it was like, okay, this makes it forgivable maybe that these set lists aren't that different because similar to Springsteen on Broadway, I think Springsteen on Broadway is a more sort of blatant narrative in that show. But I think he's carrying that over to the arena show in a different kind of way. And I think it pays off. I, 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 I thought there was a sort of greater than the sum of its parts type feel to the show that I saw.
0: Definitely, and if you weren't following setlist, you may not be aware that in the first two shows, he actually sandwiched "House of a Thousand Guitars" between "Last Man Standing" and "Backstreets." We saw that in Tampa, and I was a little disappointed that he dropped "House of a Thousand Guitars." But I later saw the show in Portland, where it did go from "Last Man Standing" right into "Backstreets," and, and I agree with the people that felt that that's. Segue worked better and it was more powerful with just the two songs rather than the three.
2: I feel like, I don't know if you've heard this, um, I really love the song House of a Thousand Guitars. I feel like there's, uh, th- that people don't like that song. They don't. Am I wrong? Yeah, <laughs> no, they, they don't. <laughs> like people think it's repetitive or uh, I don't know. I I like that song I because I feel like, oh, he's singing about heaven in this song. Like this is his version of heaven. And to me, it's like a very melancholy, beautiful, almost like tearjerker type song. But then I go online and I feel like I just see people complaining about that song (laughs) when it comes up in sets. So I don't know.
0: It didn't work as well as I think he hoped. And, he did it the first night. They had a little performance issue. We we actually saw him after. Say to Max, there was a he had, there was a mistake somewhere in there, and I, I saw him saying to Max that was on me. They did do it the second night. I guess he felt it didn't work any better, and and since then, obviously, it's been gone. I always hold out the hope that something like that will come back. But as Flynn has pointed out, once he drops the new material like that, it it rarely makes a return, at least in any kind of major way.
2: I was really hoping to hear Janie Needs a Shooter. Oh, yeah. That was, and it's funny because, you know, when you're uh, before the show, you're talking with other fans, the natural conversation topic that comes up is like, what song do you want to hear? And I surprised myself because I kept thinking of Letter to You songs. Like, those are the songs I, like, he played uh, Burning Train in St. Paul, which I loved. I don't know how often he's played that on this tour. I, I feel like that's not necessarily one of the
1: over, over the last like uh, week and a half, two weeks or so of the tour, uh, like the second half of February and early March. It be, it had returned to an every night status, and okay, I, I love the song, so uh, I I really like that that constant inclusion.
2: Yeah, that and uh, it was great to hear that song, but I really wanted to hear Janie needs a shooter because that's one of my favorite songs on on that record. Um, But yeah, I was, I was excited to hear the new material live. Uh, I definitely like hearing the old stuff too, but uh, I mean, I really think the letter to you songs worked really well in the set. And I hope they did. Those songs don't just disappear. Um. After this (laughs) run of shows, you know, hoping that there's going to be a bunch more Easter. Obviously they're doing the stadium tour uh, and they're going to Europe and all that. Um, but yeah, hopefully those songs don't get whittled away. I feel like the response in the room was pretty positive to uh, De- definitely to ghost. I mean, yeah. I feel
1: like I, I feel like I heard an echo of when he started the song. I, I I hear the sound of your guitar. I feel like I heard everyone else singing that song as well, which which yeah. was a very uh, felt very good to hear that so many people were into it, even an, even opening night in Tampa.
2: Yeah, and I, I mean the show I saw, I think he played five songs from the record. So it was a you know, he was pushing it. I mean, it wasn't just the greatest hit set. Um I mean that's the other thing though about that set is that I remember, you know, there's a Rolling Stone interview that he did with my friend Brian Hyatt, where he said something that stuck in my mind where he was talking about how there's all these archival releases that he's yeah. been overdubbing, and he said, you know, I can access any voice from my past you know i can sing like i did in 78 or you know in my mid 80s guys and it was interesting thinking of that because this show has elements of that where there's a lot of like all the wild and the innocent songs it's like we're gonna kind of go to the the jammy jazzy era you know like that's really well represented in a way that was surprising to me and then touch you know all these born in the usa songs are in there he's playing uh, You know, songs from The Rising and Wrecking Ball. I mean, you you really are getting like every corner of uh, what he does. He's playing a Seeger se- session song.
0: As our audience knows, I think I could live without that. Hey, everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King and Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course, provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.
2: to uh, hear, I mean, you know, like I, I like that album. Okay. I think like one song from there is like a perfect amount, you know, especially if you're doing the sort of omnibus reaching every corner of the, of the catalog, you know, type set list.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, it's, he seems to, he touches on 73 to 84 and then nothing until 2002. Yeah. Skipping out That whole late, uh, late eighties tunnel of love up through, up through tracks.
2: Yeah, I know he played "Brilliant Disguise" in Tampa. Yeah, uh, which with, I would with, have loved to have heard with Miss uh, Patty. Patty yeah. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah,
1: <laughs> it's a a Patty song. You know, let's, you know, and unfortunately she's only been at two shows thus far on the tour. I would love to hear hear him take uh, take shots at "Human Touch" and uh, and tougher than the rest, if not the title track from "Tunnel
2: of Love." You know, he played "Human Touch" at one of the 2016 shows that I saw. Yes. which I was not expecting at all. And I don't think anyone, I mean it seemed no one wanted to hear that song, but I li- I mean I like that song. And it- and just the fact that it was rare you know made it cool to to hear.
0: The band is great on that song. It's one of the things we've been talking about recently is people talk about the set and especially the main set, it's not really a greatest hit set. I mentioned constantly he's not playing Born in the USA. As we know, he doesn't do Streets of Philadelphia. Uh, None of the hits off Tunnel of Love are played. He doesn't play Cover Me. It's It's a very interesting decision that he's made in the way he has put together the set. And we totally agree. We did an entire episode looking at the theme of the set list and tied to mortality. He really is giving the main set, at least, I, I think is a bit challenging for the more casual fans. And then he does give them some red meat in the encores.
2: Yeah, it it reminds me a little bit uh and you guys talked about this on your show, the the, the Tunnel of Love tour, where that was obviously much more theatrical, but that was a tour that is known for how he was purposely avoiding a lot of the big war horses during the set list and playing, you know, like be true and, you know, songs like that. Uh, this isn't quite as radical as that, but just to me, again, what I think and, and Bruce hasn't confirmed this, but to me, there's like an obvious narrative to this set list uh, in a way that it's not a greatest hit set, but I do think it's representative of his career, you know, in a way that, you know, like Katie's back, is isn't a hit, but that, yeah signifies a period of his career like the early period and and he's playing it like they would have back then you know getting as close to that version of the street band as this band can get um so i really like that I, i thought that was a pretty fascinating approach
1: now you talked about letter u and the the themes going through that and issue of mortality seems to be the the overarching theme of the album how do you compare that to something like Western Stars, which I thought had a lot of that as well?
2: Yeah, you know, Western Stars, you know, that's an album that I like I would have loved to have heard the title track from that album. Oh. I I think that's that's like one of his best songs of like the last 10, 15, 20 years. Um you know, it, there's been an interesting thing with with Springsteen, I feel like, in the last you know, since uh, the memoir came out where I feel like he is in a way creating space between Bruce Springsteen, the person and Bruce Springsteen, the icon or the character. And, you know, he talks about that in his show and, and in the book that the character of Bruce Springsteen that we all know and love that to some degree, that's like an invention of Bruce Springsteen, the person, you know, that he's not necessarily the guy that he presents himself to be on his albums. And, and uh, in, in on stage, and you know, that's because he's an artist, you know. Uh, and there's oh, it, and this is connected to the ticketing issue that with Bruce, with someone like Bruce Springsteen, when we talk about ticket prices, it's felt more acutely with him because of what he has associated himself with as a writer. You know that he writes about regular people. He writes about uh, you know sort of like the blue collar experience in America, and because of his art that creates a different standard for him that we don't necessarily have for his contemporaries, you know, the Rolling Stones, Paul McCartney, people like that. Like he stands for something different because of what he writes about as well as like his activism. But I think mainly because of what he writes about and like Western stars is such a fascinating record to me. Cause it's almost like he's trying to be a different kind of songwriter. You know, he's, it's almost like this is his version of like, an early 70s singer-songwriter record that someone would have made in California, you know, like like a Jackson Brown-type record, almost. And it's interesting to see him kind of try on those different hats, you know? And that's why Letter to You... I mean, Letter to You is him kind of stepping back into that role that we all love as Bruce Springsteen, like the big-time rocker. But even there, I think he's kind of being more straightforward with his audience that like i'm not i I am a person you know like i'm not like the uh larger than life superman that you go see at your local arena or stadium i don't know i just think that's a really interesting aspect of like this part of his career you know that he's kind of stepping outside of like that role that he's created for himself over the last like 50 years
0: Right. And I think he did that pretty strongly in the Broadway show that Bruce Springsteen, the person we know, has sort of been an invention. And I do think that plays into the response to the ticketing because people don't really want to believe that Bruce, that they think they know, is going along with what the rest of the industry is doing. And you really, we've tried to get away from the ticketing, but of course we cannot because it's such a big theme for the year. I thought your take on it was really fascinating because you come down to taking a quote from something that he said. I think it was to Andy Green. Well, I'm old, and and you, you weigh in on that and tie the whole ticketing thing to that—that that he has changed as he has gotten
1: older.
2: Yeah, I mean, the ticketing thing—it's uh, it's such a difficult issue because I, I totally. I, I think it's I, I totally understand like why people were furious about it. I and I also understand Bruce Springsteen's perspective too. I mean, in that Rolling Stone interview with Andy Green, he essentially says that I usually tell my people to price tickets a little bit lower and then you know lower than my my peers, but like I'm 73 now and uh let's just do what everyone else does. And there is a little bit of an element there of like, are you getting the gang to get, you know, like in those old like heist movies, you know, like where it's like, we're going to get the gang together one more time for like one last job. And then we're going to retire to the uh, Bahamas or whatever, you know, like every crime film has that plot. Well, I, can, can I cause like, cause like when he put it that way, I was like, okay, are you sort of looking at this as like, I don't know how many big tours i have like this left in me so you know maybe let's just see what we can get i i don't know that that's how it came across to me when i read that
1: well the problem with your uh, analogy there of the heist movie getting the gang back together for one more big time is that it never ends up good for for, for those guys
2: someone <laughs> gets killed true. at least that's someone true. gets
1: killed someone gets someone gets arrested they finally serve time in jail so i'm hoping that's not the case here
2: no, uh, yeah, I mean maybe the uh, bad resolution is that you just get bad press, you know, I'm like that's, that. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, and you know, cuz like when I was writing this piece, I th- I felt like well, you have to talk about the ticket issue because it has cast a pall over the tour, you know. I mean, there's no getting around it. Like I know when I was talking about going to see the show, I tweeted about it, and you know, most people are like, "Oh, that's great." But there's like a significant minority of people who are like griping about the tickets and making jokes about it and being like, Oh yeah, I hope you meet your financial (laughs) supervisor there. You know, I hope you didn't have to sell a kidney and I'll just say up front, I'm extremely lucky. I was able to get a press ticket to the show, so I didn't have to pay a ton of money. I use this, every other Springsteen show I've had to pay for, but like I, I was a privileged member of the media and I was able to get a really nice, uh, uh, ticket, uh, to that show. So, um, so I'm definitely not going to criticize anyone who complains about ticket prices. Cause I, I'm again, just a totally lucky person who didn't have to pay this time. Um, but yeah, I don't know what the solution is to it because they haven't toured in seven years. That's a long time. And it's even longer when you factor in their ages, you know, it's not like you can't compare them to like the Foo Fighters or Pearl Jam or something other big arena bands who are in their fifties and sixties and presumably have multiple tours ahead of them. You really don't know like what the status of this band is going to be moving forward. You know, again, I hope there's more arena tours from them, but I don't think we're, you're in a position where you can just presume that. No. Uh, And Bruce has other albums in the pipeline, even if he wanted, you know, even if the, He felt like he could do an arena tour. I mean, he may not want to do that. He may want to do other sorts of things moving forward. So you don't know what it is. So I think when you factor in how long it's been since they were on the road and just where they're at in their career, I don't know if that was going to be an easy ticket to get in any scenario. I mean, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Tickets were going to, we're going to sell like hotcakes Regardless of the price, and it's obvious as, as Hal has pointed out, there are no empty seats in these arenas. There is definitely a market, and people are people are paying it. I'm not sure people are paying five thousand dollars for a, for a seat, but when you're charging even 200 to 300 to sit in the upper level, people are paying it
2: well and, and I wrote this in my story. I mean, I think that what bothers people is that like Bruce Springsteen is doing this to them. You know, and it's it's personal, yeah. And (laughs) and Bruce, to his credit, you know, he was pretty upfront in that Rolling Stone interview. He didn't hide behind his manager. He didn't blame Ticketmaster. He essentially said, like, this was my decision to do this. And I think it would be easier for people to rationalize this if they could just say, "Well, Ticketmaster's evil," or "The scalpers, you know, are, are are screwing me," but people feel like Bruce Springsteen is doing it to them and that makes it worse. Um, but again, you know, I don't know a scenario where it would be different. I I don't know. I mean, the dynamic pricing, if you don't have that, does that just get passed on to scalpers then? Like if tickets are, you know, if if every ticket's like a hundred bucks, You know, are they just going to be gone immediately and then they just get jacked up on the secondary market? I mean, that seems like that's happened in the past. I mean, I really don't know. I mean, at some point, the ticket issue just becomes a headache that you don't want to think about because it's like I'd rather just think about the music. You know, like this this thing, it just overshadows everything. I mean, we're talking about this now for several minutes. Yeah. Uh, it (laughs) It becomes a drag. No, to talk about, but, but I get why people are mad. I I, I I totally get it. I mean that it's it's a hard thing.
0: We feel the same way. We had Charles Cross on last week, and he's certainly more down on Bruce in terms of the ticket pricing than I than I think you are, or either Flynn and I are. And at a certain point, and I think he made some good points. But at a certain point, I said, hey, look, to me, it's about the music. Let's talk about the joy of being there for the same reasons you're saying. Bruce is not going to be doing this that much longer. And I don't want to be in the crowd thinking about ticket controversies. I want to be in the crowd and be in the moment. And just as you described it in your article be living the story that he's telling us on that night. And it is very difficult. And we've had this conversation with quite a number of people. Some people can't do it. They they say, we just can't put it out of our minds. And some people aren't going and, and we understand that. But uh, for me, I really do just want to embrace the music and appreciate the fact that we're still getting to see this because as you wrote so eloquently, this is going to be over sooner rather than
2: later. Yeah, I mean, everyone gets to make their choice. You know, that's really all you can say about it. And if someone says, I I can't enjoy this show because I feel like he tried to screw us over, I totally get it. You know, and uh, hopefully you can still listen to the records and enjoy those or listen to your bootlegs and enjoy those. And life's too short, though. You know, you could be mad about this, but hopefully it doesn't totally kill your fandom but that's your choice. You know, everyone has their choice with that. Exactly.
1: Now you have a new book that's coming out in about, in about a year. You announced it, I guess, at (laughs) least on Twitter. I assume you announced it elsewhere also. Yeah. uh, Called, there was nothing you could do. Bruce Springsteen's born in the USA and the end of the heartland. Yeah. Kind of give us a, some sneak peeks about what you're doing, what kind of information you're getting and
2: who you're talking to. Yeah. So, you know, I, uh, you know I'm a music critic so i write books of criticism and that's like what this book is uh, so i'm you know it's not the kind of book you know there's a book coming out um about nebraska in a in a few months uh, by Warren Zanes and i think he talked to springsteen and it's more of like a sort of like a journalistic type book and my book and this these is the kind of books i write it's looking at born in the usa and really looking at it from, again, like a music critic's perspective and, and trying to figure out what did this record mean when it came out? What does it mean now? And what does it say about how rock music in America have changed in the last 40 years? I'm fascinated by Born in the USA as a record. It was like one of the first rock records I ever like knew about. Like I was six years old when I first heard this record, like in the summer of 1984 found it in my dad's glove compartment. Um, And I really feel like it kind of shaped what I wanted from rock music in a way that I didn't know as a kid, obviously. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to articulate that, but the idea of this big tent record that all kinds of people can get into, whether you're a six-year-old kid or a teenage girl or a rock critic or a politician or whoever it may be, and it becomes a meeting place for people to come together no matter like what their background is. And I think that's a very American idea. And it's something that has really changed in the modern era. That idea that you can put aside your differences and enjoy something. That America, I don't want to say it's gone, but that idea doesn't really seem to be even something that people want anymore especially not from someone like Bruce Springsteen, who on Born in the USA is sort of like a hybrid of like what Elvis was in the fifties and what Bob Dylan was in the sixties, combining this sort of physicality and intellectualism into one person and him becoming this kind of big monoculture type star. Um, so really that's like what I'm talking about, you know, talking about the record, but also trying to place the record in a larger context of, culture, America, music in general. I hope this doesn't sound too wonky because I think when you read it, it's also funny and entertaining. And uh, there's a lot of stuff about music in there, but that in a nutshell is like what I'm trying to talk about. Cause I think Bruce Springsteen at that time was a figure of like incredible cultural importance, like that goes beyond just music. Especially if you, if you read what people wrote about him at that time, they really talk about him almost like he is a political figure. And there's really no equivalent to that now. And I'm really interested in like figuring out how he got to that point and how it shaped his career after that. Because I really think that if you look at his career, it's pre-born in the USA and post-born in the USA, that the first 10 or so years of his career are about building up to that point. And then the rest of his career is about trying to figure out how in the hell do I reconcile my stardom and he deals with that in different ways. Certainly in the late eighties and nineties, he's running away from it. And then when he reunites with the East street band, I think in a way he's trying to sort of return to that and figuring out a way that he can use that in a way that is good for the culture, you know, you know, you know, not to sound too idealistic. So anyway, this is like what the book is about. I, I, That's, hope, I hope this sounds interesting. Oh, for, it, <laughs> it sounds fantastic! Yeah. Because
0: one of the things you're really touching on is the change in the last forty years. That everything now is so fragmented. Right. The idea of universal experience is nowhere near what it was in the 1980s. I understand some people are going to say, like, well, African Americans didn't really get into Bruce in right. the 1980s or whatever, but the public as a whole, Born in the USA was such a phenomenon. And not only with Bruce, you don't really see that with anyone today, even Adele and Taylor Swift, well, you know better than me. But I don't think the country comes together behind these artists in the same way that people did behind Bruce in 1984
2: and 1985. Yeah. And, and, and you know, just how, I mean, people forget... I mean, obviously we all know like where Bruce's politics stand now, but he's been much more vocal about that in the 21st century than he was in the mid 1980s, where if you listen to an album like born in the USA, there are elements of that that are like very progressive, but there's also elements to it that are at least culturally conservative. You know, the idea of respecting America while also critiquing it, you know, respecting the sort of like small town nature of you know, or small town cultures and like, you know, people like hard work, like the sort of standard American ideals uh, that you hear about. And he wasn't necessarily being upfront politically in terms of like, you know, he wasn't campaigning for Walter Mondale, for instance, against Ronald Reagan. And you, uh, and you had like Ronald Reagan, you know, that the famous story about him, misinterpreting born in the USA. But I think that there was, it's not quite that simple. I don't think I'm getting a little too in the weeds here. I think with my book, I don't, I don't want to like tell you everything that's in the book. (laughs) That's fine. But but I, 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 I'm just interested in that because I think the kind of figure that he was like, you're not really allowed to be anymore. Like, I think he was honestly trying to, again, create a space with his concerts where everyone was invited. And it didn't really matter what your background was or what your political beliefs were, that you could come to the show and there was something in his music that could speak to different kinds of people. And that there was, it was like the proverbial middle ground that we're always kind of seeking in this country. It's like, it's going to be at this stadium tonight. And I think that was a deliberate thing that he was doing. And there's just no space like that now. And a lot of my book is, 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 trying to kind of figure out like how that happened, you know, like what changed in, in music and what changed in America that makes an album like born in the USA seem inconceivable now, you know, because there's people now, if you look at the other big pop stars of the eighties, Michael Jackson, Prince Madonna, like the other, the, the, like that's considered the big four of like mid eighties pop music, Springsteen, Madonna, Michael Jackson, and, and Prince you can see people trying to be the other three people. You know, you can see people who are trying to make music like Michael Jackson, people emulating Prince, lots of Madonna inspired artists. Now there are people inspired by Bruce, but they're not superstars. You know, they tend to be Americana artists, uh, cult artists, you know, people in the indie rock world, but someone like Bruce, there's just no equivalent to that. And, I'm just intrigued in kind of tracing how that changed from 1984 to now.
1: Are you referring to artists who want to be like Bruce, like current artists or artists from the mid eighties? Like now,
2: like I think that you could, you could point to people now that you could liken to the other big three. I don't think there's anyone now that you could liken to Bruce Springsteen in 1984. Who's making this sort of, rock music rooted in like the history of rock music. You know, like like at that point it was really, you know, like the first 30 years of rock music, like Bruce Springsteen in a way was like the summation of that. Like I said earlier, and I'm not the first person to make this observation. I mean, Bruce has obviously talked a lot about Elvis and he's talked a lot about Dylan and how those two guys were these sort of, I guess, centrist rockers who people looked at as touchdowns for the, culture at various points. Elvis was that at the beginning of rock and roll. Then Bob Dylan, even though Bob Dylan wasn't as commercially successful as Elvis, he had a political and cultural significance that went beyond how many records he sold. And then you have Bruce who is taking elements of both of those on a record like born in the USA and and how potent that was, but how I don't think there's someone after Bruce that, continues that you know i I feel like that chain kind of gets broken after bruce
0: one of the fascinating things as i'm hearing you say this is a lot of the artists today whether they're americana or indie if you sit with them and i'm sure you have my guess is they're less influenced by born in the usa than they are certainly by nebraska and some of the other records that bruce made whether it's tunnel of love or darkness what i'm what I'm realizing now as we're having this conversation is Born in the USA, as big as it is, 30 million copies or whatever it was, the artistic impact of the record on the artist as it filters down, perhaps that's not where Bruce made his biggest mark, even though it's by far his biggest album.
2: Yeah, you know, I actually disagree a little bit in terms of Born in the USA's influence because I think like, starting in like the mid-aughts, you started seeing bands that like looked at born in the USA and emulated the sound of it a bit, but also aspire to the impact that that record had. And I'm thinking of the killers for instance, with Sam's town, I think is a pretty deliberate. I I feel like born in the USA is the touch is is touchstone for them with uh, among Bruce records, even though, uh, Brandon Flowers was wearing the bolo tie from like the D- Tunnel of Love era. <laughs> so he's mixing and matching a little bit. But I think he had that with Arcade Fire as well. Yes, the Suburbs. Yeah, I think uh this the War on Drugs definitely, you know, it's funny there's so many you know cuz there's bands now that get described as heartland rock. And heartland rock of course is a term that originated in the 80s born in the USA is considered, I think, the uh sort of the the trademark record of that, but you, know, you have John Cougar Mellencamp and Tom Petty and artists like that. I hear so many bands that sound like downbound train where, you know, and that's not even like a big hit from born in the USA, but the combination of like that fender guitar sound and uh synthesizer. Um, I think, and I know this because there's been like various covers of that song by like indie bands, like Kurt Vile covered that song and i think strand of oaks covered that song um but that song in particular i feel like there's so many bands that i feel like when they call themselves heartland rock or they get described as that like they sound like that song in particular just like the combination like, like roy bitten's synth sounds on born in the usa i think has become like a, a fairly common touchdown that i hear in a lot of like younger rock bands that are you know playing in that lane.
0: Interesting. Kurt Vile actually did a cover of wages of sin, which is from the board. USA yes. Sessions. Right. That is truly amazing. If people haven't heard that, I highly recommend it's on all the streaming services.
2: And it's pretty faithful to the Bruce version too. It, it, it's not that different. I mean, his voice is very different from Bruce's. Um, but yeah, that's a great cover. You know, obviously also in this book, I talk a lot about Nebraska too. And, and just that, um, 82 to 84 era of songwriting for Bruce that, you know, born in the USA, isn't my favorite Springsteen album, but that era of songwriting might be my favorite era of songwriting. Like, (laughs) and it's so good. And like, you know, all the stuff on tracks, obviously, but I love, uh, Those those songs that he was doing, uh, like the L.A. Garage sessions from 83, I actually write a bit about this song called The Klansman. I don't know if you guys know that song.
0: We did a whole show on these sessions.
2: Okay, because The the Klansman is a song in particular that I I really love that song. And so there's there's like a part of a chapter where I just talk about that song and how, uh, you know, how obviously appropriation or misappropriation became a theme of the born in the USA era. People misinterpreting that record as just being like a straightforward patriotic record. And just thinking about the Klansman in that context and understanding, okay. And I, I know why he didn't develop this song because that's a song that could have easily been misinterpreted by people, even though I think it's clearly a character based song about, um, you know, this this kid whose like family is being sucked into this terrible organization and it's so powerful but uh you know i mean i think that became a theme for bruce at, at this time that like once you get really popular you lose control of your art and you aren't necessarily speaking to your audience who understands you you're speaking to a pop audience who you know may just casually listen to your song and take something that you never intended from it And that's the danger of becoming really big. The upside is that you make a huge impact on people. And that's something that obviously was resonant for Bruce being, you know, a student of pop radio as a kid. You know, like, I think he wanted to have the same reach that his heroes had. But the downside is that the pop audience isn't that smart sometimes. (laughs) And they, they can, you know, they can take your art to a place that you don't want it to go. So just thinking about that and then thinking about a song like the Klansman, which I think is totally powerful, but easily misread possibly, you know, that was an interesting thing to write about.
1: How many other outtakes do you delve into to that extent or even uh, not quite that extent?
2: Um, I mean, quite a few. I mean, I, I mean, I I spent a lot of time in that early eighties period and, and and just writing about some of the things that, that was influencing him. I've got a. One one riff that I really like in the book is I talk about Paul Schrader quite a bit, and and uh, yeah, Paul Schrader obviously wrote this script called Born in the USA, where that's what that's where uh, Bruce got the title from. Um, but uh, just comparing and contrasting their careers and how they were really, I think, influenced by a lot of the same things that were going on in America at the time, which is something I do in my books. You know, like I, I like you know, sometimes you write about an artist by writing about art that isn't parallel to what that art is or art that inspired that art. And my hope is that that's what a critic does. I mean, a critic I think provides extra context for people It places. It, it's like a larger story than just like this record. Cause I think that's the power of, of, of this album and Bruce Springsteen's work in general is that it's not in a vacuum. You know, it was very much a part of like what was going on in America at the time that these records were released. And I think it's worth exploring that a little bit. And I think sometimes if you do like a more straightforward book, you miss that. And those books are great, you know, because you you can really dig into the minutiae of like how stuff gets made. But I think there's also value, I hope, in the kind of books I write, which is maybe pulling back a little bit and seeing the larger view of, of where this all kind of fits in into like a larger cultural story.
1: And you examine the musical landscape that enabled this, this album to explode the, the way it did?
2: Yeah, certainly. I'm, and again, you know, I'm, I'm talking about like what's going on in Bruce's career at the time, obviously, also, you know, with, what's going on in music. This was obviously a time where technology was changing uh, pretty dramatically. And, and uh, the more, I guess, mechanical type of music was uh, coming more into play and how, Bruce didn't resist that maybe as much as he had on other records that this was something that he was willing to embrace, you know, you know, like with with Roy Bitten bringing in synthesizers, obviously to this record and, you know, dancing in the dark, doesn't have a drum machine on it, but Max Weinberg is playing like he's a drum machine essentially. Uh, So yeah, certainly um, there's a lot of that stuff. Going on again. I don't want to like say everything that's in the book, <laughs> right? Of and course, still, we don't want
0: you to I, give I, away the whole book.
2: Yeah, I'm still I'm still writing this thing. It, you know, it's not done yet. Um, But uh yeah, that's definitely into play. But yeah, I should I should say too that you know, like I wrote a book a few years ago about Kid A, uh, the Radiohead album. I re- and I wrote about that album, but I was also writing about Radiohead's entire career and using Kid A as a way a- as a way into that as. Sort of looking at that record as like the fulcrum of their career, that they were working towards that record. And then the career after was like reacting to that record. And also just writing about like what the world was like at the beginning of the 21st century, which I thought was really interesting. Because again, like K Day isn't my favorite Radiohead album, just like Born in the USA isn't my favorite Springsteen album. But I think Born in the USA has like the richest subtext to it. To me, it's like the most interesting record to write about. And I think it's also his most important record in terms of the the bigger culture. So, you know, I was interested in writing about this record, but to me, it's also a good way to write about Springsteen's career and also a good way to write about rock music in the last 40 years. And again, these sort of larger changes in America that have gone on. So really trying to integrate all those strains into like one story that I think will pay off when you read it.
0: I thought you did that incredibly well in your Pearl Jam book and, and the way you approached it was not really from, uh, I think the way a lot of writers would have approached it because what you did was you took specific shows and specific performances from the shows you wrote about and used that as a jumping off point to examine the band internally and their impact on the culture. And and I thought you did that beautifully. And just reading about how you looked into what Ed was feeling, especially in the nineties, I expect you're going to do the same thing here with Bruce and everything that was going on in the mid eighties. And and I'm really excited to read it.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. I, it doesn't have the same structure as the Pearl Jam book, but it's definitely coming from a similar place of, uh, you know, again, telling kind of three stories at once about the artist, about the music and then about what like, what was going on. Like with the Pearl Jam book, I really wanted to talk about them just in the context of the nineties and like what they meant in the nineties uh, culturally and then how they've continued on as a band, you know, cause it's so rare for a band to stay together for 30 years and you know, they've had several different drummers obviously, but they've had the same drummer now for like 25 years. So they've been more or less like a pretty stable band. And that was like the big question I had with that book was like, how does a band stay together? You know, how, what, what keeps a band going? And, um, and I think with this book, it's why aren't there people like Bruce Springsteen anymore? You know, (laughs) you know, that might be the question. You know, like what? How did he get to where he was, and what changed that makes that record seem impossible now? So that that's one big thing. I don't know if that's the central question, but it's like one of the big questions of the book. I think.
0: Well, Just that's a, that
2: really interesting.
0: That is the perfect tease for us, and we would love to have you on when the book I'd love gets to come published. On.
2: I'd love because to be here.
0: We've really enjoyed this. And this, this was just wonderful. And, and again, people should check out your article in up rocks on his latest tour. Bruce Springsteen contemplates his own ending. It's really a brilliant piece about the tour and where Bruce is right now.
1: So Stephen, we, we can't thank you enough for coming on.
2: Thank you guys. I love the show. Uh, and it's so fun talking about Bruce with you guys. All right.
1: Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. And, That's the album that got me into Bruce, so I'm really looking forward to that.
2: I hope you guys like it. I'll make sure you guys get a copy. Thank you.
1: Once again, that was Stephen Hyden, the
0: cultural critic for Uproxx, and I I really thought that was great.
1: Oh, I I loved hearing what he had to say, and I love hearing what what his book's going to be about, so I'm really looking forward to to reading that next year.
0: Yeah, how cool is it going to be when we have him on to discuss the book? That's going to be really something for us
1: especially since it's going to be the 40th anniversary uh, about almost the exact time that the book's coming out. So, and Hey, and maybe we'll know something about some kind of USA or Nebraska box set, but not holding my, holding my breath on that one yet. And that is one of our favorite periods, as I mentioned, (laughs) while we were talking to him.
0: So we can't get enough of that.
1: No, not at all. Especially all the other, all the other studio tracks that that he created that Bruce created uh, during that time period.
0: Well, I don't know where we're going next. We've had Nikki Germain, we've had Charles Cross, now we've had Stephen Hyden. Maybe we'll have another big name guest next time. Let's see how that goes. But eventually, we're going to have to go back to just you and I talking. I think,
1: <laughs> and I hope people will enjoy that whenever it happens. Hopefully, we'll have some something fun to talk about, and uh, yeah, just have uh, just stretch out a little bit more. It
0: really, I, I have to say, uh, how incredible is it that these people are coming on to talk to us? <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but it really is amazing.
1: Well, actually, what was cool was that Stephen Hyden says he listens to us. I think that's a, that's a huge compliment right there. Oh my God, is that a compliment? They uh, several of them have
0: said that to us. So it, it really, it really does touch me. I, I, all kidding aside, it, it's it's. <laughs> It blows me away.
1: Yeah, it's just so humbling that uh, all these people, experienced reporters and journalists and and critics listen to us, and I just hope we can uh, keep it going. That would be good. Let's
0: see where it goes from here. As I say, maybe we'll have another guest next time. We don't like to overpromise anything. We'll announce it when it's confirmed. But in the meantime, I'm going to wrap things up. None But The Brave is produced by Bull Market Entertainment and presented by Evergreen Podcasts. On Twitter, we're at MBTB Podcast. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page yet, I think we're doing some fun stuff there. We do a live stream every month that seems to be getting a lot of approval from our subscribers. Check that out. It's patreon.com backslash
1: MBTB Podcast. So for House Words, I'm um, Flynn McClain thanking Stephen Hyden again for coming on, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so
0: much. We'll be seeing you.
2: Hi, I'm Daniela Clark.